0: is Lord indeed take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 20 beginning in verse 19 John chapter 20 beginning in verse 19 have you ever been surprised have you ever just been somewhere and something happened that you absolutely were not expecting you know you you see an old friend or you see a family member but they're at a place where they're not supposed to be and and there's just a a sudden shock well that's kind of what the disciples are going through in this passage we're actually going to take two passages together today we're going to take his appearance with the most of the disciples all but one and then we're going to take his appearance a week later with the disciples with that one who was missing being present that is thomas And we're going to kind of tie those together and see several things that that John has been wanting us to see in this entire 20th chapter. The 20th chapter isn't apologetic. It's a statement of issuing the facts as they are. And and he wants to deal with, with several things. One, he wants you to see in chapter 20, first and foremost, the truth of the resurrection. That Jesus Christ really did come back from the dead. He really did resurrect. He really was dead, laid in a tomb, partially at least embalmed with 100 pounds of spices. And three days later, he came forth from the grave. It's the same point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. I mean, John is wanting us to see that this is the linchpin, this is the anchor. That our faith rests on the very truth, the very fact of the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, through the years, people have tried to explain it away in myriad of of different directions. Some have said, well, it's allegory. You know, the idea of him raised from the dead is just sort of an allegorical truth that we kind of move into. And we say, oh, well, we talk about him being raised so that we can sense his presence in an allegorical sort of way. John did not see this as allegory. Some will say, well, it's just symbolic. You know? there's, there's no real resurrection from the dead. I mean, heavens, we know people don't, just don't do that. Uh, but, but there's a symbolic nature here. Others have said, well, the disciples were hallucinating. Bless their hearts, they so wanted to see Jesus so bad that they just had these hallucinations about him being there, and he really wasn't there, but they thought he was, and since they thought he was, they preached that he was, and that preaching kind of caught on, and and even though he really didn't raise from the dead, since they thought they saw him, and everybody else believed that they thought they saw him, then we just talk about his resurrection. If John were alive today, and and any of those theories would be thrown out, John would say, you're out of your ever-loving mind. We saw him we heard him we fellowshiped with him we saw him lay lay in the grave we saw the body prepared we saw him die on the cross and we saw him alive there is no there is no allegory there is no symbolism there is no hallucination we saw the Lord. So the truth of the resurrection is the first thing John wants to see in this passage. The second thing he wants to see is the centrality of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. When Jesus stands in the room with him, he's going to say something that just kind of brings the, the Holy Spirit to bear upon it and centers that. And, and some commentators even say this is sort of a preview of Pentecost. You know, when in the second chapter of Acts, when the Spirit came upon the disciples and they spoke, And they preached in in sermons that everybody was there could understand in their own language. That this particular room is sort of a, a precursor to that. And those 11 disciples that were left after Judas had departed, they sensed the presence of the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that. But he also wants to point to the necessity of faith. The truth of resurrection, the centrality of the Holy Spirit, and the necessity of faith in these verses. I mean, if you look at it, if you look at the Gospel of John, faith has been a, a, a genuine theme and an important theme all the way through it. Uh, ever since chapter 5, really, you realize that, that the trial of Jesus has been taking place not in the Jerusalem courtroom of Pilate or Caiaphas or, or Ananias or any of those uh, leaders, but the, the trial of Jesus has really been taking place in the venue of the entire world as they saw him. They saw his miracles, they saw his signs, they they heard his teaching, and and those men and women had to make some kind of determination about who he was and what his guilt or innocence was. Nobody remained neutral. Do you notice that? In the the time from chapter 5 on, nobody was just neutral about Jesus saying, well, he's a nice guy, that's good. They either said he's filled with demons or they said he's the son of God. They either said he's, he's a false prophet, he's a, he's a poser, or he really is who he says he is. There was no neutrality. There was nobody around who just said, well, you know, he's just a good guy, glad he's around. Maybe a little strange, but he's a, he's a good guy. No, there was no neutrality. They found, some found his personal claims to be outrageous, and they were filled with rage, and they worked to sabotage him, they worked to kill him, they worked to end his life. Others observed his deeds and listened to his words, And decided to believe that he indeed was at least God's messenger, his son, bearing divine truth that the world desperately needed to hear. One thing John will drive home in these last two chapters, 20 and 21 of this book, is he will drive home that really faith is really a matter of relationship even more than it is a matter of creed. I mean, we we have creeds. Creed just means is from credo which just simply means, I believe. So everybody has a creed, uh, everybody lives by a creed, everybody expresses a creed, and faith is based on creeds. I believe in God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. I believe in the the 66 books of the Bible that they are the infallible and inerrant Word of God. I mean, those are creedal expressions, and those are important to believe, but John wants us to see that this matter of faith really is a lot more a matter of relationship relationship with the living God, and relationship with His Son who came into the world. It's a matter of relationship. So that's what John is wanting us to see. That's the the three main overbearing ideas of the whole chapter of chapter 20. But I want you to hear what he says starting in verse 19. All that was just introduction. Sounded like a full sermon, didn't it? Sorry. So when it was evening of that day, Evening of that day is actually the same day of the resurrection. They're still on that Sunday where Mary and John and Peter have gone to the tomb and now it's evening. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, and the word there literally means shut tight, could also be translated, some translations do, they were locked, were the disciples. The disciples were For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. There's the surprise visitor. There's the unexpected appearance. They've heard Mary say, I saw him in the garden. And many of them said, okay, Mary, sure you did. Okay, Mary, you're a woman after all. Your, your testimony is not acceptable by itself. I'm Okay, Mary, just, just bear with us here. But now he stands in their presence, and, and I think the reason he begins with, Peace be with you, because they're sitting there locked up, afraid the authorities are going to come and arrest them, and all of a sudden, there he is. And I'm sure there was shock, there was fear, there was unexpectedness, and he just says, Hey, peace be with you. Just peace, shalom. I'm here. I'm with you. Don't stress out. Maybe that'd be a good translation. Don't stress. We could all use to hear that, couldn't we? I better read this on or I'm going to spend all time explaining these little phrases. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. He, He showed them the evidence of who he was. So Jesus said again to them, peace be with you as the father has sent me I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Tough verse. We'll talk about that. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, or the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord, just like Mary did. But he said to them, hm, Yeah, right. Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thus, Thomas forever is given the, the nickname Doubting Thomas. Changes in a bit, but that's how it starts. So you look at verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside. Some translations say after a week, taking the way the Jews counted, starting on the day they began, Sunday, and counting through to the next Sunday, that's eight days, it's one week, one week later on the the Lord's day, on on the resurrection day, the second Sunday after he rose, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them this time. And Jesus came, the doors had been shut, and he stood in their midst and said again, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Two words, apistos and pistos. Pistos is the word for faith, believe, ah, put on the front of it. Is unbelieving? He said, don't be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered and said to him. Doesn't say if he went over there and touched him or not. Implication is he probably didn't. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. This is the Word of our God. These two events carry with it a, a lot of emphasis on Two things, on faith and on doubt and on mission and on the Spirit. In that first encounter, when he comes into the disciples, they're gathered in the room fearing for their lives and says, Peace be unto you. And they see his side and they see his hands and they believe. He immediately starts talking to them about mission. He says, you know, Peace be to you, with you again, he says. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. He starts out by talking about the importance of mission. The importance of the mission that he is involved in. In the Gospel of John, Jesus defines himself as the sent one. He does that over and over. He says, the Father has sent me. I have come to do the will of my Father who has sent me. I have come to do my bread and my meat, which is what my Father desires, because he is the one who has sent me. And he talks clearly about that. God the Father is always the sender. Jesus the Son is always the sent. And we see the Spirit involved in that. And so thus we see that the whole concept of the Godhead is defined in terms of mission. I'll give a little plug for my class in the disciple training coming up. We're going to be talking about, talking about delighting in the Trinity. And one of the things we're going to see in delighting in the Trinity is that the Trinity's whole concept is, is fellowship and mission and learn to delight in that ourselves. So Jesus starts out by stressing the importance of the mission. As the Father sent me, Now I'm going to send you. And so he starts out by the importance, and he talks about the character of the mission as a second part in that upper room. He uses those two words, uh, two verbs that are are different. He talks about, "I, I, I have been sent, past tense, and now I am sending. Jesus does not see that there are two different missions involved here. I want you to see that. As the Father sent me, as the Father sent me, so send I you. There is a continuity, there is a unity, there is a oneness that goes into this. It's not a double mission. Jesus' mission and the mission that is ours afterwards are are all a part of the same mission. To take the gospel to a world that needs it. One single action, one great movement of the missionary heart of God, sending His Son initially and now since the incarnation, since the resurrection, sending his church into the world to carry forth the mission for which he came. Now, I'll just be honest with you. Were I in that upper room with those disciples, that would have been a daunting challenge to me. I think it's a daunting challenge to us today. As the Father sent me, so send I you. Wait a minute. You are God incarnate. You, you are you're part of the Godhead Jesus you've got all resource you've got all power you've got everything you ever need I'm just a mere mortal just a mere man I'm sure Peter even in his boldness after his denial is coward still over in the corner saying I'm sure he doesn't, sure he doesn't mean me because I failed him I'm sure that others are saying man we ran and hid we locked ourselves in this upper room probably the same room here by the way that they observed the Last Supper with him just a few days earlier. It's a daunting task. And, and so it says in verse 22 that because the, the mission was so daunting, the mission was so, so difficult, he says, Thirdly, then I'll, I'll give you the right resource. And he, said to th- he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I'm continuing it. And I'm continuing it in your presence. That's why some commentators say this is a a preview of what is coming at Pentecost. It's a preview of what is going to take place when, when the Spirit comes in fullness upon the whole church. Here it is to the apostles, here it is to that inner circle, those closest disciples of Jesus. He says, I'm not going to send you out into the world without the proper resource. I'm not going to send you out in the world to face the antagonism and face those who would want to destroy you just like they want to destroy me. I'm not going to send you by yourself. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Know that the Spirit is with you. And then he makes that statement that, that some just stumble all over. He says, you know, if you... If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, then they have been retained. Understand, he's not talking about you and me being able to go and say, oh, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Don't worry about it. your sins are forgiven. I have the Only God has the power to do that. But he is saying that when we take the gospel and we see people come to repentance in faith, when we share the gospel with family, friends, neighbors, and we see them come to repentance in faith, we have the assurance of knowing that if they come in that way, we can say, your sins are forgiven because you've repented of your sins, you've trusted in Jesus Christ, and that is evidence that the work of God has been taking place in their life, and if we see it, we can be assured that it's already been done by Him in heaven. Do you see that? We have the present reality of seeing the joy of salvation of men and women when we share the gospel with them. But we know that God says, listen, if you you see their sins forgiven, you acknowledge that, you know they've already been forgiven. You are just carrying out the purpose and the plan for which you've been called. So in that first encounter, he's concerned with mission and the centrality of the Holy Spirit. And that mission is for every one of us who claim the name of Jesus. Then comes Thomas. They say, Thomas, we saw the Lord. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe that unless I see it. Th- Thomas says, Thomas says I-, I know some certain things. I know that dead men don't come back from the dead. And, and, and get this, Thomas is, something's going on in Thomas's life beyond what we can clearly see. But here's Thomas, he says, unless I see it, unless I touch him, unless I I visibly do it in my own experience, I will not believe. There are two wonders for Thomas, one is that Jesus really raised from the dead and now he meets him, and the second is that Thomas stated conditions for faith, those things that that Thomas said, I must do, Jesus fulfills. Do you notice that? The indication is here clearly that, that Jesus heard what Thomas said. The spiritual realm is not always exactly like the physical realm, and, and, and Jesus knew exactly. None no, of the other disciples have been able to see Jesus. Evidently, John gives us no indication. say, oh, by the way, John, Je- by the way, Jesus... Uh, Thomas is having a really tough time here, and he says, if he can't touch your hands and touch your side, he's not going to believe. Jesus knew he said it. So Thomas stands in wonder when Jesus begins to speak to him, peace be with you, and he says to Thomas, touch my touch my fingers with your, touch my hand with your fingers and, and put your hand into my side and don't go on unbelieving, but be believing. Don't be going, don't keep going on as faithless, Thomas. Thomas, you saw everything I did. You heard everything I said. And yet you show yourself to be faithless. I, I really think with this, with, with a statement John made, uh, excuse me, Thomas makes in, in verse 28, when Thomas answered him and said, My Lord and my God. And, and, and there's, a, there's a sense here that he he kind of fell before him and just, just worshiped him. And Jesus received that worship as God. Because that's who he is, but there's a sense in which that statement in with John's gospel kind of brings the whole gospel full circle, doesn't it? Kind of brings the whole message that John's been trying to show us full circle. He started in John one one, in the beginning was the Word Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and then all through the rest of this book, he has. He has laid out the reality, the truth of who Christ is. And then with Thomas, old doubting Thomas, his his doubting becomes faith, his unfaithfulness becomes faithfulness, and he simply says, my Lord and my God, and he believed. And yet Jesus rebukes him a little bit and says, Thomas... Because you have seen me, have you believed? Of course, the anticipated answer to that question is yes. Yes, Lord, I have seen you, and I know now that my doubting was foolish. I know my doubting was uncalled for. I have seen you, Lord. Well, that's okay. But he gives a beatitude here. He said, but... but Thomas, blessed are they who did not see, and yet he believed, yet they believed. You know what Jesus is talking about there? He's talking about you, if you're a believer. He's talking about you who, who only have the testimony, albeit the eyewitness testimony, and the personal experiences of the apostles to tell us but because of of their truthfulness and their faithfulness in proclaiming the gospel and it passing down through generation after generation and millennium after millennium, you believed not seeing Jesus with your physical eyes. And John just records Jesus saying that, listen, it's more blessed for those who never saw him than it is even for you who have seen him your faith is based on his spirit working in your life and yes with your spiritual eyes with your spiritual understanding having your eyes opened and your heart open and you see what you see without seeing you hear without hearing you believe in the truth that has been reported john is showing us here that there's a lot going on in thomas's life there's I think he deals with their, there's an agony of faith in a lot of people's lives. Mine and yours included. There's an agony of faith that, that shows itself sometimes. We, we struggle. We, we do have doubts and those doubts become prevalent sometimes and we, we struggle over those. And, and Thomas did. I think you know Thomas probably wanted to believe in some, at some level but it just didn't seem right. There's several things that are kind of common ingredients with Thomas's experience, and, and sometimes they're common in our experience too, in our doubts. One is just disposition, personality, if you will. You know, some people are just predisp- predisposed to uh, to just believe. Things just don't work out like that. You ever know anybody that just, you know, their their basic core belief is. If it, if it sounds that good, it, it must be too good to be true. You know, you, you've seen people like maybe you are people like that. Some people see the gospel and they say, "Oh man, it's just it's just too good to be true. All I got to do is believe in Christ and my sins are forgiven. All I got to do is trust and confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and and I can be made right with God. That's just too too simple." And and so Thomas's disposition, as you see in other places in the Gospels, was just sort of given over to a doubting personality there's also another ingredient though with thomas i think that's prevalent to us and that is the ingredient of isolation where was thomas on that afternoon of the resurrection we don't know the other disciples had cloistered together they had They had hidden together, they had locked themselves in the upper room together, and and they were talking to one another, and they were were trying to encourage one another, you know, somewhat trying to figure out what had taken place. Thomas must have isolated himself from from those disciples. It's not until a week later that we see him with the disciples. And, And so he went off by himself after the crucifixion, perhaps back to his own home, perhaps back to his old friends. His old trade. I, you don't. It doesn't really make it clear, but but it is clear that he isolated himself from the group that he most needed to be with for encouragement and strength at that, and to see what God was going to do. Sometimes we isolate ourselves from the body of Christ, and our doubts rise, and our fear rises, and we say, "Well, well, you know, I just don't know if I can believe anymore." And, and you ask somebody, "Well." Have you been fellowshiping? Have you been in Sunday school with a small group studying the Word? Have you been in worship, looking, lifting our voices and your heart to God in prayer? Ha- have, have you been praising Him? Ha- have you been with the body of Christ? And no, I just kind of, just trying to do my own thing. I'm trying to find Jesus by myself. Doesn't work. Didn't work for Thomas. Won't work for you either. Don't isolate yourself. Then there's, I guess the the sheer idea of of contradiction. Thomas knew people that died usually, in his experience most of the time, almost always, maybe he remembered Lazarus, I don't know, but that was a little different because, Lazarus had been dead but Jesus was there to raise him. This was Jesus dead and nobody there to raise him as far as Thomas could see. So this idea of contradiction, the, the, the stark reality of what he saw on the cross just overwhelmed him perhaps. He just had nothing of comparable significance to compare it to. There was just this contradiction. There was It didn't matter that the the fellow disciples, when they finally did see him, said, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Mary saw him first, then we saw him. It didn't matter. No, Mm -mm. I'm not going to believe that. I know that people that die stay dead. I don't know where he is. But there was that contradiction in his own thinking. There's an agony of faith, folks, in a lot of people's lives. Struggling to figure out, how can I believe? That which I just can't see. So Jesus says, blessed are those who believe, though they do not see, and yet they believe. You and me who struggle through the agony of doubt and the agony of faith. The second thing he shows here is the assurance of faith. I mean, here's an eyewitness testimony. The disciples saw him. Mary saw him. Now Thomas sees him. All in different settings, All in, Mary in the garden, the disciples in the upper room, and, and maybe in the same upper room, but a week later, Thomas sees him. There's this idea of eyewitness testimony. And that's what John wants us to see. That's why we can believe in the truth of the resurrection. That's why we can understand the, the significance of our mission. That's why we can understand what God is trying to do in his church in the 21st century. There's those eyewitness testimonies. I'm reading a book right now. It's, or I've just finished it and I've been watching some videos by the guy and some of you I've pointed to him a little bit. Uh, a guy named J. Warner Wallace from California. He's a, he's a former LAPD homicide detective. He's a, he's, a, he's a cold case detective. Loved to get into cold cases. and You know what a cold case is? That somebody's been murdered. You don't have cold case robberies or cold case embezzlements. You have cold case murders and and, and and he would investigate those. He would try to bring you know there's no statute of limitations on murder, and he would try to bring all of the circumstantial evidence to bear upon that crime, and 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 get a conviction of a murder, based on evidence where there wasn't a, an immediate eyewitness, where there wasn't uh, you know immediate forensic evidence, and and he did that, and he did that for years, and. He was an atheist when he was working to begin with. He became a Christian and then started applying what he knew about cold case investigation to the Gospels. Because, I mean, while we have eyewitness accounts here from the Gospel of John and Matthew and Mark and Luke, we have eyewitness testimony, but sadly those eyewitnesses are a couple of thousand years removed. They're not around today. And so he started looking at that and looking at the circumstantial evidence and saying, were, were these eyewitnesses really good witnesses? And by doing that, he became a Christian and now teaches on that, wrote a book on that titled Cold Case Christianity. It's a fascinating little book. So we see the assurance of faith that's based on those who saw what they saw and reported it. There's also the glory of faith here. My Lord and my God. I mean, there's just a a glorious expression there when faith is received, when faith is believed, when we trust in Him who rose from the dead and now breathes the Holy Spirit and gives life to those who are dead in their sins. There is this, this glorious expression of faith. My Lord and my God. We'll see it again in chapter 21. It's a glory of faith. Thomas had been depressed, no doubt. Thomas had been despondent. Thomas had isolated himself. Thomas had said, it's all over. But when he saw Jesus, when he saw him, he fell on his face and he worshipped him. There's the glory of faith. That's what we express every Sunday right in here. The glory of faith. As we sing, These are the Days of Elijah, as we sing, Behold our God seated on his throne, we know that not because we've touched the throne, not because we've seen him personally face to face, but because spiritually, by faith, we've encountered the living Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, John basically gives an invitation to faith. <laughs> he said, Many other signs that Jesus did in the presence of the disciples, which I just didn't have the space to write in this book. Many other things he did, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John's purpose is clear, and the challenge is insistent as he reaches his conclusion here. In in light of his presentation of Jesus throughout the whole gospel, the signs of his life and ministry, his teaching and his claims, his death and his resurrection, where do we stand? John invites us in verses 30 and 31 to respond by believing. He invites us to do the very same thing that Jesus said to Thomas, Quit being unbelieving and be believing. Quit not believing and believe. He said, I've given you the evidence. I've written all these down, enough for you to know. There's a lot more I could tell you, but I just don't have space for it. But I've written these things with the sole purpose, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. By committing ourselves personally to Christ as our Lord and God, even as, even as Thomas did there, trusting in his death as that of God's sacrificial lamb to atone for our sins, and following him in the way of discipleship as our way, truth, and life. It becomes a personal thing. Again, We talked about that last week. It's a very personal thing, but it's never private. That's what Jesus is saying to the disciples here. I breathe on you the Holy Spirit. I send you as the Father sent me. You go tell what what I've done in your life. You go tell what I've done. And John assures us that if we believe, we have life. If we believe, we have life. Life in his name life because of who he is now there's something here for everybody if you're in a believer this morning i want you to understand as he was sent by the father so he sent the apostles and so he sends you and me and as lord he is our commander-in-chief as lord he is our boss we simply are to obey you're here not a believer, then, then the, the invitation is very simple. Quit, be, quit being unbelieving and believe. Hear the testimony, hear the evidence, and put your faith and trust in Him. Paul said to the, to the Roman Christians, if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, what John is showing us here to be truth and fact, if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. No if and or buts no question, no maybe, it's an emphatic expression, so if you're here this morning and you've never believed, the invitation is come to Christ, not to a church, not to a preacher, not to a religion, come to Christ, because as I said, faith at its very essence is a relationship more than it is a creed, there is creedal involvement, but faith in Christ is a relationship, you're here and you're already a Christian, you know you've trusted him, then then there is to confess him and go forth on the mission with which he called you. You say, well, he hadn't called me to go to Africa. No. No, most of you, he's called to go to Somerset. Most of you, he's called to go to Pulaski County. Most of you, he's called to take his truth of his gospel right where you are. You know, Wednesday nights, we started this last week. I'm doing it with the adults, Todd's doing it with the youth, a gospel boot camp. we for four weeks, I hope, maybe six, the way I'm going right now, uh, hopefully four weeks, we're just doing the basics on the gospel. We did it last Wednesday night, and we'll come back this Wednesday night, and we'll, last week we were talking about what to believe, what is the essence of the gospel. This week we talk talking about how to live the gospel. And that's what the call is to those who believe. Live it. You say, but I don't have the, I don't have the strength to live it. I, don't, I, I can't live it by myself. Bingo. You understand it if you can say that. The power comes not from your inner self. The power doesn't come from your kind of gilling it up within. The power comes by receiving the Holy Spirit. Trusting Him for daily strength. Trusting Him for daily obedience. Trusting Him for the walk that he's called you to. So there it is. Are you going to be obedient as a believer? Are you going to believe if you're unbelieving? That's the call of John's gospel to us this morning from chapter 20. Let's pray together. Father, when we look back 2,000 years, it, it seems so far removed. We looked back 2,000 years, it seems like, wow, how do we see that? How do we, we can't see Jesus with our physical eyes. We can't see those hands. We can't see that side. And that's where your Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes and our hearts. Lord, I pray you open eyes and hearts this morning to believe, to come to Christ. Father, there are others here who just say that the task is daunting. As God sent Jesus into the world, so He sends us. That's massive. We live in a skeptical world. The Lord, help us see we go in the power of the Spirit, not in our own power. We go filled with your presence. That's your promise. Your assurance. And the reality of our walk with you. Father, challenge us this morning with the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.